Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my uh, two co-hosts, uh, Ryan Sweet. Sweet, Ryan, why do I keep messing up your last name? There's something. No, no, it's only been 17 years, Mark. I know. It's just uh, because I'm saying it so fast. Uh, I think that's what it is. But uh, welcome, uh, Director of Real Time Economics, and Chris Chris Dorides, Deputy Chief Economist. Hi, guys. Hi, Mark. Um, Mark, are you, ex- are you excited about what? 2026? The, the World Cup. Oh, I saw that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, that is exciting. Now, Philly's never hosted a World Cup game, have they? I don't believe so. No. No, probably not. That's going to be cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you going to go? Uh, if I'm still around. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> All right. They're setting the tone uh, for today. Well, you know, things happen. <laughs> Who knows? He's getting nervous because he, he realizes his probability of recession is too low. No, it's got to be what it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. I was going to say something. What was I going to say? Oh, uh, we, uh, in the first part of this podcast, we're going to talk about the Fed and uh, a lot to talk about there. But then we're going to pivot and bring in a guest, Anna Stansberry, who's a professor at MIT, who's done a lot of great work on... Um, Socio, the socioeconomic uh, composition, diversity. I guess, diversity, yeah, of the economics profession, um, which isn't so good, actually. It's like the worst among all PhD programs in the country uh, or PhD disciplines in the country. So, we're going to dig into that a little bit more deeply and uh, get her insights. But before we do that, we, let's talk about this Fed. Uh, and of course, this is. Friday afternoon, June 17th, in the wake of the Fed's or the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee's decision to raise interest rates, the federal funds rate target, the rate they control by three quarters of a point. Okay, with that preface, let me turn to Ryan, who's a careful observer of what the Fed does. Uh, Ryan, just kind of fill us in however you think most appropriate as to what they, what the Fed did this week. Well, they did a lot. I mean, they raised the Fed funds rate. That was the largest increase since 1994. So this is pretty unusual. Usually on the way down, they cut by large amounts, but on the way up, they usually go by a, you know, a measured approach. But uh, I think it was the, 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 the response, you know, rather going 50, which was fully priced in, which everyone expected, except for Chris, who thought 75. 50 basis points being a half a percentage point. That's, what, the, percentage that's point. what everyone expected this time last week, or not everyone, except maybe Chris. Chris. who was intimating at it, but it was, uh, it was widely expected to half a point and, and they came back and raised rates three quarters of a point. Correct. So not only just that, they, they tweaked the, st- the statement. So before, you know, in the post-meeting statement where they explain, you know, what, what their actions were and why they did it, uh, their forward guidance was that, you know, they felt pretty comfortable that they could return inflation to 2% without damaging the labor market. They kind of took out the labor market part. So it was kind of, you know, an indication that maybe, they're losing a little bit of confidence that you know they're going to engineer a soft a landing. A little bit, a little bit of confidence. I'm, just, I'm trying to be nice. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm not going to be so nice, by the way. So I'm just. All right. Yeah. I'm really confused by this whole thing. So I. Yeah. But and then we also got the summary of economic projections, which includes the Fed's forecast for GDP, inflation, unemployment, and also includes the so-called dot plot, where you can see the median projection of all participants and where basically it's, you know, it's not set in stone, but it's kind of a look into where the Fed thinks interest rates are headed, and they really jacked that up. So at the end of this year, they now expect the Fed funds rate to be 3.4%, and then 3.8% at the end of next year. 
And then in 2024, they're expecting to cut rates back down to 3.4%. So to kind of put that in, into context, the neutral Fed funds rate, which is where the Fed fund rate should be when the economy has no output gap, inflation's at 2%, uh, the labor market's at full employment is 2.5%. So they're really going to be applying that, By the rates. way, that's their estimate in, yep. in, in our is the same. We're the same. Correct. 2.5%. Okay. So they're going to be really applying the brakes over the next couple of years. Right. Okay. Uh, Chris, anything you want to fill in there? Any color on what they did? Uh, Factually, you know, your interpretation of the facts, which I know are often a little skewed, but compare. <laughs> well, I, I think they are. I think the focus is on expectations and I justify their 75 basis point uh, hike by trying to really slam down on uh, on the expectations. I think we did see some result of that in the bond markets. So I'm yeah. puzzled by that. They're really putting Very. a lot of emphasis in the University of Michigan survey. And that came up a couple of times in Powell's press conference. So after each FOMC meet, meeting, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, will come out and you know give an opening remark and answer questions. And he mentioned Mich- University of Michigan survey uh, of, of consumers' inflation expectations, which is driven by food prices, gasoline prices, and I just don't understand why they're putting so much stock in it. Hey, can I can I just frame the the, the discussion around what we think about what they did yeah. in this way? In my uh, view, my in my humble opinion, let's put it, put it that way, the, they have two reasonably uh, uh, possibly possible goals that they can achieve. The first by by raising rates here, For, in the context of the inflation problem that is obvious. We've got to get inflation down. Well, everyone's in agreement about that. First is slowing growth. They have to slow growth in the economy so that the economy doesn't blow past full employment. That unemployment doesn't go into the low threes. Right now it's three, six. Uh, and that would exacerbate the inflation because it would just you'd get into a kind of a wage price kind of dynamic that would be very counterproductive spiral. The second is keep inflation expectations tethered down. You don't want people, businesses, consumers, investors to think inflation is going to be high in the future because if they do, then we are going to get end up with a wage price spiral. Inflation is going to be higher in the future. You know, if consumers think, if workers think that inflation is high in the future, they're going to demand a higher wage and their employer is going to say, fine, no problem, because the employer thinks they can pass that along to their customer in the form of a higher price. And you get into this very negative dynamic and inflation becomes more entrenched. So those are two reasonable objectives, right? I mean, they, I don't think the Fed has anything to do with this inflation that we're suffering now. That's the result of the pandemic, supply chain disruptions, labor market issues, Russian war in Ukraine, oil prices. That, that has nothing to do with the Fed. And the Fed directly can't affect those things, but the Fed can make sure that the, the high inflation as a result of those things don't, don't infect inflation expectations or that the economy blows past full employment because then they have a deeper, bigger inflation problem. So does, do you think that's a reasonable way to think about it? And if that is, do you think a 75 basis point move, a three quarters of a point hike in the funds rate, was that necessary? I mean, could they have accomplished those two goals uh, that I articulated with a half point increase, which is again what every what markets thought was going to happen a, a week ago. So it, it first of all, did I frame it in a way you th- mm-hmm. does that make sense? And then what do you what do you think about what they did? No, I think you framed it right, but seventy five was not not necessary. I, I mean, their fifty basis point rate hikes have been working. 
you know, they're, they're getting financial market conditions to tighten. The stock market's down, long-term interest rates are rising, credit spreads have widened out. They're getting the response that they needed. I don't think they needed to go, you know, a supersized rate hike. And you can see markets are responding. Uh, they were caught a little bit off guard. A little bit. But that's what they wanted, right? They want the markets oh, are to you tighten sure? up. They're getting yeah, too much. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. They want, they, they want the stock market to be down 25%, not 15 to 20. They want they want mortgage rates to go sky, uh, uh, skyrocketing over 6%. They, they want that to happen, you think? Well, they want to, they wanted everything to be, to, uh, be much more gradual, but that hasn't happened, right? Now they're playing catch up, right? They so, have, so you to, th- you think they the have three, to slam on the brain. You think the yeah. three quarter point was a, was a good move? I think that was appropriate. Oh, really? We were even talking 100, right? There was chatter of 100, right? I think that was oh, ch- the panic your own button. mind, maybe 100. But, I'm not, not, not was, there, was there chatter, Ryan? I, I don't follow the markets that carefully. Were, were people saying 100 basis points? Yeah, there's, some point? people were throwing 100. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think well, that would have been the panic button. Right? But here's, okay, so this is then the, the crux of the matter. I mean, if, how do you measure inflation? I, if, there, if, you, if your goal is to slow growth, I say mm-hmm. check. There, that growth is slowing. It was slowing, you know, even before this rate hike. It was clear the economy was going to slow down dramatically. I mean, take a look at GDP growth if that's your benchmark. We could get two quarters of negative growth, Q1, Q2. Now that overstates the case, but it makes a case. Job growth is slowing. The housing market is in reverse. Yeah. The economy is slowing, no doubt about it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And second, on inflation expectations, if you looked at bond market measures of inflation expectations before the anyone thought they were going to go three quarters of a point. It was roughly where you'd want it to be, right? I mean, at least by my account. Look, if I looked at one year, five year forwards based on break evens, and I'm not going to go, listener, I'm not going to go into any depth here, just, you know, because th- that would be three hour lecture, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, break evens and inflation swaps, that was down to 2, 2.4%, 2.5%, which is within for the CPI, the consumer price index, that's within target. So, well, the five-year break-even wasn't all the way back down, right? It was yeah, but, still, but it was coming down, but it, it was, wasn't uh, yeah, but back it, at the it, level that we'd like, right? Yeah, or but the target. I mean, within spitting distance, and in in the and the swaps, inflation swaps were well within target, at least by my reckoning. So, and then you you're what are you pointing to when you say to Brian's point? You're pointing to the University of Michigan survey expectations that they're too high. Hit me a break. That's just a direct front function of Oil prices, what I'm paying at the pump. I, I would so Ryan, I'd go so far as to say food prices are a bit player and all that. It's like, what did I pay for gas this time compared to the yeah. last time I bought it? And that's what I expect inflation is going to be in the future, according to the 500 people who participate in the University of Michigan survey. Yeah, if you look that's at- That's not the only one, right? Look, look at you, Mitch. Fed. Yeah. All right, well, you yeah. mentioned one, one year inflation expectations. I mean, it's they track gasoline prices almost oh, yeah. perfectly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So, okay. That's a reasonable debate though. We're debating what are inflation expectations? How do you measure them? What's appropriate? That kind of thing. I, I feel that's a reasonable, uh, you're I disagree with you. I, you know, and, and of course I am by extension disagreeing with ostensibly, if you believe what the fed said, what they're saying, but okay. But let me ask you this question. Do you think it made sense that you would plant a room uh, plant a rumor at the New- Wall Street Journal two days before the event. Again, everyone, most everyone thought a half a point. 
the Fed decided because of the last week's Friday CPI report and the inflation expectations by the UMISH, if you, again, if you take them at face value, that you know we go through quarters of point. And the way they got that into the marketplace before the actual meeting was they put a, uh, a they planted that in the Wall Street Journal and Wall Street Journal report. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you that. Does that make any? That isn't that, no. that that's, that's ad libbing. That's off script. That's oh, I'm no, that's normal. I'm that's par. That's par I'm for the panicked. course for the Fed. No, that's no, par no, for the no. That, uh, not because mid mid meeting. Uh, so they have a blackout period where they can't say anything yeah. ahead of the meeting. On Friday, we got the hot May CPI. Yeah, and then UMIS came out. You know, an hour and a half later, and big jump in inflation expectations. So now the Fed knows they're going to have to do I, I know why. Yeah, I know that. I know so they why they it, did it. But they don't want does that make any sense to you that you would go to that length? Because it now smacks of panic, doesn't it? That to me, that's an ad lib. That's a, that's a I'm going off the, the, the music page and I'm going to make it up as I go here. That's what that says. No? Write that down. That's a Zandyism. Music page? Music page. What do you call it? Uh, I got I used it. To, I used yeah, to play saxophone, by the way. I was, I was You're in a jazz not band. very good. <laughs> <laughs> but I was in a jazz band. Actually, it was a pretty cool jazz band. I, we'll, we'll talk about that later. So we you were always off the music page, right? Jazz is... Uh... Actually, that's very true. Yeah, that's very true. It's I was. always improvised, right? And it didn't sound very good. Let me tell you that, which is a metaphor. For this. Oh, yeah. yeah. I see you're bringing your baggage into this. All right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, this is all about me. Yeah. Well, during the financial crisis, I agree with you, though. I don't think that was uh, the right move. I, yeah, I think really. that does smack, smack of uh, conspiracy and uh, panic, you know, pa- to some extent, panic. I mean, the yeah. be- one of the best tools that the Fed has actually is surprise. And, you know, if the idea is if you believe that expectations were off the off course and you really wanted to send a signal, then you would surprise. Then you would say, "Oh, you expected fifty here, seventy-five. I'm coming in strong. You know, yeah. Watch out. I'm, uh, you know, listen to me, right? Uh, it was a little surprising how much they. You can disagree with that premise, but yeah, yeah. I would argue that that would be consistent. But. What were you gonna say, Ryan? I think that well, the one surprise was the dot plot. You know, sure. That was feds. really surprising. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, the, as you point out, big, big increase in the expectation by the Fed members, FOMC members, of future rate increases. Much, much was almost a point higher, wasn't it? Yeah, because I think it, a peak now is three point eight. Yeah, that's three point eight, two eight, or something, right? I, I, mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The, here's the other thing that I find, um, what's the right word? Perplexed by, perplexed on the border of annoyed but you know let's call it perplexed <laughs> and that is it's like they're waving a white flag on the on the economy they're saying oh you know very high probability now almost yeah you can count on it we're going into recession and that goes back to what you're saying about the statement right Ryan? there was a mm-hmm. sentence that in after the last ofmc meeting back in when was that that was uh, may wasn't it was it may i believe it was may yeah may it said basically our policy would be appropriate to get inflation back down to target and to keep the economy at full employment. That's what they said. The same sentence, they took out the part about full employment. This mm-hmm. is consistent with getting the inflation rate back down to target. Nothing about the economy, which is a clear signal that, okay. That, They're going to break inflation and break the economy. Yeah, and break the economy. Mm-hmm. Really, this is a but this really? is a whatever it takes moment, right? They're they're focusing all the attention on inflation, right? <laughs> that they've been criticized for 
for not doing so. So of course they're going to pivot that. They're saying, yes, they are saying we are willing to accept higher unemployment in order to bring We're willing uh, to accept the recession down. is what they're saying, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, don't know ah, that they go, yeah. I don't know that they go that far. Oh, because right? in the projections, they don't have a recession. Brian, right? what do you think? I mean, I think it's all but saying we're going into recession. I mean, if you listen to Powell's press conference, yeah. I mean, his tone was, oh, yeah, we could yeah, still pull it off. We well, might be able to pull it off. Yeah, yeah you know. So you, you don't see, think the dot plots are reflecting their no. true opinion? Well, I mean, they have rates. None of them have. Well, well, that's an actually, actually, actually interesting uh, question. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about it that way. That you know, if we were going into recession, could the funds rate actually uh, achieve three point eight percent by next by this time next no, year? No, we're not going to get out to three eight. That's, so and that's what you're saying. You're, you're saying we're going into recession, and there's no way the funds rate's getting that high. Correct. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's related, but the Fed. So I think Powell testifies next week before Congress. Yeah. And before his testimonies, he put the Fed puts out you know the monetary policy report, which they yeah. give to Congress, and in there it says. Uh, the Fed's commitment. Did that come out today? It came out today. And it Friday. said, okay. yeah, it comes out Friday, so ahead of his testimony. It mm-hmm. said the Fed's commitment is unconditional to bringing down inflation. I saw that. Well, there you go. That's- so, so, Chris, Chris, yeah. in my, again, in my humble opinion, a recession is a loss of faith. And, you know, consumers lose faith that they're going to be able to hold on to their job. Businesses lose faith that the consumer is going to be there to buy whatever they produce. And they, cut back on expansion plans, ultimately lay off workers and you're in recession. Yep. And generally, there's some major problem in the economy, economic fundamental problem in the balance sheet of the economy, leverage, overbuilding, too much inventory, you know, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, the, uh, you, that uh, loss of faith combined with that imbalance sends you into recession. Right. Here we are sitting today, <clears throat> the economy is fundamentally has no problem. As far as I can tell, you know, no significant problems. It's got high inflation, but that has nothing to do with anything other than the pandemic and the Russian invasion. Nobody's fault. Nothing wrong with the but. So it's all about if you're going into recession, a loss of faith. By saying to the world, "I think we're going into recession," that just exacerbates. And then you get the market reaction we got. Stocks sold off five, ten percent because people are losing faith. It's it's like we're talking ourselves into recession when we don't really need a recession. Why? Why do we need that? Why does it? Why do we have to do that? Why do? Why wave the white we flag? We don't. Again, I don't see them as declaring recession. They are the the issue is inflation and loss of faith of of the consumer is is directly tied to inflation at this point. Yeah, but right. So I mean, what they seem to be saying to me is the only way we're going to get inflation down is if I drive this economy into the ditch. And I'm just saying why. Why do you, why do we think that we need it's a quarter point first of all right more well, than I hear you. I hear you. I agree right? with that I agree with and that. I think not, it actually yeah. it could actually open the door for a less aggressive hike in September for example right so oh, instead I of think they every, go 25 basis uh, quarter it's point? Po- it's more it's uh it's a possibility now had they gone 50 now 50 was a guarantee you, that's if it's a 50s, told us 75. yeah 50 50 is the new norm until they yeah. get over two or over. Here's the, here's over. the other thing I don't like, and I didn't like this before, and I don't like it now. About this, I need to see the the whites of the eyes. You know, the remember back when they wanted mm-hmm. to get inflation up, they said I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, tighten monetary policy until I see the white whites of the eyes of inflation. Now they basically are saying I'm not gonna ease policy until I see the whites of the eyes of. Well, I don't know. You get my drift. I yeah. you know, fill in the blanks. 
that doesn't that's that doesn't make any sense to me because it, did, it didn't work back then. We it didn't work back people. then. It's not gonna work now either. Work now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just you're just threatening to go from one side, boom, 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 from one side to the other. I don't know. I'm you know a um, little uh, perplexed by the whole thing. Uh, unless you know, it could be to your point, Chris. They could be playing four dimensional chess, and I'm still stuck in a two dimensional world. You know, maybe this is strategic. You know, I I think so. Yeah, maybe like every CEO on the planet, they want to make sure every CEO, every CFO, everybody knows this this economy is likely going into a ditch unless inflation comes <laughs> down. Therefore, oh, yeah. you can't count on keep increasing prices like you are. You can't count on big wage increases. You better scale it back, and by so doing makes it less likely you go in the ditch. Is that what you're saying? That's what I, I think. That's the plan. Well, you belong on this Fed. That's all I <laughs> think. I take his cup. I haven't seen Mark this critical of the Fed in a very long time. Yeah. Never. Never. I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm 99.5% there. I just don't get this. I just don't understand this. So, I mean, and then you're right. It's, you know, it's not, it's 70, it's one, one move, right? Let's see what happens yeah. here. Yeah, it's a move they should have taken back in whatever January. The only the only reason I'm a little more exercised is because it feels like to me they're they're going to keep going until we are actually in recession, and Mm -hmm. and I don't believe that's necessary. I just don't think that's necessary at this point. Again, if inflation expectations, by the way, just I just I don't pay put any weight on the University of Michigan survey. Zero weight. I don't think it means anything. Zero. It put you know. And I actually don't put a whole lot of weight on a forecast by economists either, including myself, because because we don't change. You know, we don't change the forecast until it's patently obvious. You know that it, uh, you know that something has changed. Uh, Ryan's not like that. Chris is not. I'm like that. I'm you know a bit slow. So I put all my faith, almost you know, a lot of it the market. on on the market, on the bond market. They're putting People their money, putting where, their their money where their mouth is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Reiner and I are in sync. Did you see that? It was, it was, yeah. it was, here's a, here's a music term for you. There was a little bit of a phase shift there, but mm-hmm. otherwise, <laughs> just to prove I did play the saxophone when I was in high school. Mark's just fired up because the Fed's going to kill his low probability of recession. That is actually very true. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like when they when they release they're messing the minute, with my but, forecast yeah they're messing with your forecast you're messing with my forecast all right okay uh what else on the fed uh anything you know well, i, I kind of drove the train here on the discussion the framing maybe there's a different way to think about this so far away interesting they didn't mention quantitative easing at all or the plans for the balance sheet you mean time i guess it, uh, uh, yeah sorry uh, well the reversal of quantitative easing. Yes, did they not but, did they mention that at all they mentioned it, uh, uh, last just the movie. standard, you know, hmm. that thing's on autopilot. Okay. Yeah. Reducing the balance sheet. They want it to be like watching paint dry. They don't want to make any you know, big wiggles. So you don't read anything into that as though you know, they're not going again. I, I see that as not panicking. They're not pulling out all the stops. They went an extra 25. Well, they don't need to because the bond market is selling off rapidly. They don't need the mm-hmm. QT. I mean, I mean, the ten-year yield is back in a little bit, but it's at what three point two five. That's a pretty big move. Mm-hmm. And as I said, mortgage rates, thirty-year fixed mortgage rates are over six. I didn't look so, today, but so they're getting what they want. They're getting what they want on that end. Yeah. Yeah. The issue is that they might get more than they bargained for, and yeah. you know, this tightening in financial markets is going to really cut into growth in the second half of this year. Uh, you know, 
Yeah. Hey, okay. Let's, let's now do this. Uh, let's what, where are they headed now? So what's, what's the forecast? <laughs> uh, I, I, I thought I knew the script. I thought I, you know, they were on script and now they're ad libbing. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, so what is it? Uh, I guess the answer to that, for, and, and I know Ryan, you think recession, which is a reasonable forecast, but let that can't, we're still, that's not our baseline. For no, it. no, no, no. Okay. It's not the baseline. We're going to skirt. It's going to be very uncomfortable here. Growth is coming to a standstill, but actually if that were the case and inflation came in, that would be a pretty good scenario. Let's assume that's the scenario. What is the funds rate target, you know, at the end of this year and what is its terminal rate? Where is it going to peak? And when is it going to start coming back down towards uh, equilibrium? So uh, Chris, I'll begin with you. Michelle, I'll begin with you, Ryan. Where, 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 where do you think we're going based on that baseline forecast for the economy? I think we're all pretty much on the same page. Like they're going to go okay. 50 basis points at each of the next two meetings and okay. then 25 basis points in December. Right. Yeah. 25 basis points after that per meeting until they get to three and a half percent. And that would be so, early, early next year that they get to three and a half. Right. Cause they're at one seven five now. Correct. So they do a half point in No, wait, they do a half point July. in July. They do a half September. point in September. That's 275. Then they do 25 in November. Nothing in November. Oh, they raise rates 25 in November, yeah. 25, 25 in, December. in December. So that's that's uh, now 325. And then January, next January, yep. that's 3.5. And you think that's the peak, the terminal rate. So yeah, then, then they'll pause for an extended year? period of time. Until, yeah, probably infl- a year. until they sure inflation is where it's supposed to be. Or they realize that the economy is... Sinking. Yeah. yeah, and they start cutting, and then you say they go from three and a half down to the equilibrium R star two and a half in twenty twenty four. That's yeah. when they start. So, like a twenty five basis point cut at every other meeting. Yeah, and so by the end of twenty four, going into twenty twenty five, they're back to equilibrium. Correct. Got it. What do you think, Chris? Reasonable or the baseline? Yeah. I am sympathetic with Ryan's view that something else. Could happen before you get this there. plan works out, so we may not actually get up to those levels. We may be cutting before that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you you would also agree in the I'm, I'm just I don't mean to put words in your mouth. Yeah, just, yeah. just put the straw man that out there. You would agree that the most likely baseline scenario still at this point is an economy that skirts recession but doesn't go into a full blown recession. Yes. Yes, okay. but we're getting awfully close. Okay, so let, let's go there. So, uh, where, uh, what are your pro- probability, your recession odds? You know, what's the probability of recession in the next twelve months? So by this time next year, and the next twenty-four months. <clears throat> and uh, Chris, I'll go with you first. What, what is it? The- uh, same, uh, 40, 60. 40 percent in twelve, sixty percent. That was my. I've been there for a while. I think that's his. That's where he's been. Forty, sixty. How did you not change it after that meeting? Oh, why not? Yeah, I guess I, oh, well, that's, a, oh, actually, he, that's what he wanted. Going to script. Mm-hmm. It was oh, he forecasted. That. He's, actually, you know, he's a damn good forecaster. I have to say. Yeah, I gotta listen to him more. I hinted last week. Oh, you did. You did. You did. And I just ignored you. Yeah. Okay, so Ryan, what were you before, and now what are you? What was your recession odds? He was coming in. Right. I was, was coming in. 
but that's 60. That, that stops. Okay. So forget about what it was. What, what is it now? What's the next 12 right. and 24 months? In the next 12 months, I'd yeah. say six, 65% and then 85% probability in the next two years. Oh, wow. You really did not like this report. No. <laughs> you messed oh, up. The report or the, what the Fed or the, did? The action. Oh, the the Fed action. Did. Sorry. The, the action. Did. Yeah. What the Fed did. It was working. Like 50 basis points were working. Yeah, I'm on the page. There's no need to do so. So, but 65, I, that's a very strategic number, as we know. It is. Yes. <laughs> because if it's 66, we change our baseline forecast. Yeah. So we're, we're teetering on them. We're getting a lot of client questions about, you know, uh, when we would adopt a recession as our baseline. So I, yeah, I, I tell them our rule of thumb. Yeah. Our rule of thumb, if we make a major change in assumptions or our forecast, and obviously going to a recessionary forecast, we have to be very confident and that. What that means is that we have to believe subjectively, obviously, that there's a two-thirds probability in whatever it is we want to change the forecast to. So two-thirds probability that there's going to be a recession or more than we would change the, for, the baseline forecast. And mm-hmm. Ryan went right up to the line, the 65. Yeah, we're so. close. Yeah. Okay. Yield so, curve is still positive, by the way. Just to, you know, if that changes your opinion at all, Ryan. Yeah. Say that again? Yeah, uh, yield curve is still positive. Okay, I'm going to talk about that because yeah, that goes <laughs> okay. to my forecast. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So I, you know, I previously I was, I think I was one third probability over the next twelve months and close to even odds, but not over fifty percent for two years. Right. I would say it's I'm, I've gone up because of events, because of what the Fed did uh, and is doing. I'd say forty percent probability in the next good. twelve months. Good. And I'd say still <laughs> even odds over the next two years. And here's why. Uh, it goes to my where people put their money where their mouth is in the bond market. So if I go look at the bond market, inflation expectations are back where they need to be. Check. So don't lose your mind here. You know, we don't need to go, uh, you know, 75 basis point hikes. We're, we are where we need to be. Financial conditions, in my view, the stock market decline, the rise in long-term rates, mortgage rates, that's all now the strength of, I don't know if you've been looking at the dollar recently, but mm-hmm. the strength of the dollar yeah. all suggests that mission accomplished. You did what you needed to do. Let's just let things play out. You don't need to crush the economy. Um, and here's the second thing, the yield curve, my favorite barometer uh, of where the of recession, 10-year treasury versus two years is actually still, it's, it's narrow, but it's still positive. Thin. 10, razor thin. It's uh, razor thin. Yeah, yeah, but, but that's okay. That's, but that's consistent with an economy that comes right up to the line and doesn't go into recession. That's consistent with the forecast of no recession, right, you, but you, but a close to recession. You know what you should do over the weekend? Think about uh, this scenario where we get a recession without an inverted yield curve. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, that, well, what, well, what does that mean? That it, yeah, it's certainly everything is possible, but you know, why mm-hmm. should I think about that exactly? Because it's Ryan's dream. That's his dream state. Then we can <laughs> no, retire this whole argument. Yeah, I don't want a recession, but if you know we did get a recession and the yield curve didn't invert, that would be like... Okay, know. here's one You don't thing. want it, but you're saying it's coming. 65, Fine, 85. Right. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I said, the Fed. I said 40 and uh, almost even odds. You know, quite, yeah. Not quite even odds. Okay. <clears throat> uh, I was going to say one other thing. Darn, it was a really good thing too. Jeez. What's the timing if it does? Oh, that's it. That's the timing. So, uh, I'm yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's just, 
for the zone here. <laughs> that was very cool. Uh, he was saluting. We're on the same track. Uh, same track here. Okay, here's what I don't get. Here's what I don't get. If we're going to suffer a recession, how in in the in the world can it be more than a year from now? Right? I mean, it feels like the economy's like if it's going to happen, it's got to happen soon, right? Because we're slowing very rapidly. We'll, and we may get, again, two quarters of negative GDP growth, which is not necessarily a recession, but it, people are going to say it's a recession. Mm-hmm. And then how, how can with work, the housing market really getting crushed here you know, with the, the, with the mortgage rate, with the stock market down like it is with, with every CEO and CFO, every survey, every single CFO in that recent, one of those recent surveys said, I'm going, we're going into recession. How is that possible? It's going to take a year to actually go into recession. I, that I don't get. That's consistent with what you're saying, though, Chris. Forty percent, yeah, sixty percent. So explain. Yeah, you're, explain you're assuming that. no. You're assuming no other shock, right? And I'm assuming no other shock. No other something shock. else. Something else is going to come along within the two-year time period. To oh, I oh, you're saying oh, oh, interesting. You know, so you, our I'm forecasts the, are the same. Our forecasts are the same, except that you're assuming something else is going to go off the road. Uh, something's going to happen. Right? Oh, that and you got a you got a hint of what that something could be this week. I'm not disputing that, right? Mm-hmm. There could oh, be a what's, Fed mistake. I don't think this was the Fed mistake that you're referring, but there could be another oh, no, one no. coming. There's another one. What? The oh, European, another? European Central Bank had an emergency meeting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because oh, yeah. yields across Europe are just through that the is, roof. Oh, the, and, you, oh, your sovereign debt crisis in mm, Europe or somewhere else. Uh, 20, was it 2012? Uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think Italian... Uh, that spread, yeah, gapped out. out. That's interesting, Chris. I didn't didn't understand what you were saying, but that's very interesting. Your forecast and our my forecast of the recession odds would probably be the same, but I'm saying we're going to be a little lucky, and you're saying no, no chance of that. (laughs) Well, I mean, 60 is still not 85, yeah, 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 yeah. okay, okay, I get it. All right, that's pretty. You're coming, you're coming, yeah. That's pretty clever. I got you on the 40. You know, I got to work you. Yeah, that's pretty clever. Got you there. That's pretty clever. I got you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. So the timing, you know, I think you're right. If Unless, again, yeah. something else happens. Yeah. So, Ryan, do survey. you think recession, you said, what did you say your 12-month probability is? 65. 65. Okay, fine. You're still, you're right saying, up. yeah, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen soon. Yeah, probably. it's going to happen soon. Yeah. I mean, they so, had a survey of economists and they said, if a recession does happen. Yeah. 70% said it would be in first half of next year. I, I think it's going to be the second half of this year. I don't mm-hmm. see, I don't think we make it to the first half of next year. Yeah. Especially if GDP falls in the second yeah. quarter. I mean, just the press coverage of, you know, we're in a recession. That's just going to feed on itself. Yeah. I really, we're just talking ourselves into this. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a, what a mess. Anyway. All I right. Think you're also angry at the Fed because you're now going to lose a bet with Chris. The housing starts. I always lose bets with Chris. It's like, you know, I never have won a bet with Chris. I didn't want to bring that up. (laughs) Well, it's timely. Housing stars came out this week. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Chris really thinks about these bets. I got to, I got to start thinking more carefully about these bets. Uh, The value of a dollar. And and, and you're a good forecast. I admit it. You're a good forecaster. You're a really good forecaster. Yeah. Ryan. Uh, No, actually Ryan wins awards for his forecasting prowess, actually. hmm. Yeah. So okay, I'm going to be excerpt excerpting that uh, audio and posting it to my. I wouldn't uh, go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, but no, you, you guys are really. You, I mean, in all honesty, you guys are really good. Um, so housing starts are coming in. 
in the well, next this, the release. Do we really yeah. want to go there? Let's wait till the <laughs> no, next podcast because <laughs> there's a lot to oh, fair talk enough. about there. Fair enough. And we got to keep this a little short because we have a guest, Anna Stansberry yes. from yes. MIT, who's going to talk to us about a problem in the economics profession. In the pro- it's, it's certainly in front of uh, top of mind for me because we employ you know over 100 economists across the globe, and this is a big. This is a, this is important. So. Uh, we're going to bring Anna in for that conversation around the socioeconomic diversity of the economics profession. Anna, it's good to have you on Inside Economics. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. And you're speaking to us from London. I am, yeah. Yeah, and vacation, business, both? What's going um, on? Family. One of the good things about the academic schedule, you can work remotely. So I'm working here, seeing parents, sister, friends. Yeah, very, yeah. very good. You grew up in London. I did, yeah, just outside yeah. London. A, a real yeah. Londoner wouldn't call it London, but we can for the purposes of the podcast. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, uh, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, you've done a lot of great work uh, on the socioeconomic uh, kind of uh, composition of the economics profession, which uh, I, a lot of bad news there, I think. But we'll, we'll dig into that. But before we do, can we get a just a general sense of, sense of you? I know you you teach at MIT, the Sloan School, uh, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your your path to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you said, I'm at the at the Sloan School at MIT um, in the Institute for Work and Employment Research. So, uh, I'm a labor economist, primarily also do macroeconomics and studying big issues to do with with work and employment and labor markets, labor market power, labor market institutions. And um, before I came to MIT, I Got my PhD in economics at Harvard, actually just last May. Um, Congratulations. 21. Thank you. Um, and and have a master's in public policy also from the Kennedy School at Harvard and did my undergrad in economics in the UK. So I've been, you know, weaving my way in and out of economics um, for at, at different universities for quite a long time now. Um, but always been always been interested in the subject and the questions and how they relate to policy, really. Well, I noticed you, you've been publishing with Larry Summers. Uh, he, he's, he's at Harvard. Was he uh, an advisor, a thesis advisor at Harvard? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Larry, um, Larry was at one of my dissertation committee, and I worked for him as a research assistant while I was at Harvard. Do you know he grew up in suburban Philadelphia? That's where I live. His, his brother, John, is, is my lawyer. Um, no way. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, John, John's a great guy. I've gotten in trouble. You, I know, I know this is hard to believe, but I... I've, I've been sued a few times, so <laughs> I've won every single time I've won every uh, groundless, groundless, but it always helps to have a great lawyer in, uh, you know, John Summers is, is my lawyer in, uh, yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, they, uh, in fact, uh, both, I think, uh, Larry's parents, John's parents were taught at Penn. Yeah, Anita yes, Summers right. and exactly. Robert Summers. And so I've taken courses yeah. from both of them. So they're very much a Philadelphia family. Well, I, I don't know if Larry would embrace that now, but he's very much a, uh, <laughs> a, a Philadelphia. So was he a, is he, uh, was he a good professor? Or, uh, what kind of professor, yeah, what mean, kind of advisor he was, was he? Great. Uh, he was a really fantastic mentor. And I think you yeah. speak to anyone who was one of his students or sort of advisees or mentees, and they would say the same. He was incredibly generous with time and and intellectual input and mentorship actually he's he's the reason that I ended up doing a PhD because I was taking a class at the Kennedy School Hmm. um, with him and he spoke to a number of the students who you know would 
writing interesting essays in the class and asked what you're planning to do next and suggested to me, have you thought about doing a PhD? And that planted the seed. So no, he's been a really great mentor over the years. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. He's a, he's a great guy. And obviously, you know, uh, key to uh, uh, a lot of history over the last couple of couple, three decades, four, maybe four decades. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. yeah, obviously very important. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I know you wrote a, a paper with him uh, for the Brookings institution, which, which by the way, of all, and this is just maybe because of my more practical perspective on economics, I, I, I enjoy that more than any other publication. I'd say that's an academic publication. Uh, it's just very practical and approachable. Uh, and you wrote a paper with him, a little unfortunate timing though, right? It was like, <laughs> published yes. like the week the pandemic hit or something yeah it was yes. just just the week after everything shut down was the yeah. was the first ever zoom only brookings papers conference oh is that right oh, that's interesting oh, yeah. yeah yeah completely on zoom. And to fame. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but we're definitely going to talk about that paper because it's uh also uh pretty cool it talks about worker uh power uh and tries to explain a lot about what's been going on in the economy in recent decades from that perspective but we'll come back to that but let's talk about the work you've done uh trying to understand the socioeconomic kind of composition of the economics profession can you just yeah. for, first of all can you define terms what do you mean by socioeconomic what does that mean exactly yeah so socioeconomic background i mean can be it's, it's sort of meant to be a catch-all right to describe uh, what sort of status, resources, access you, your family had as a child, if it's your socioeconomic background. And so typically people are talking concretely about one of three things when they talk about this, they're talking about family income, they're talking about parental education, or they're talking about what occupation your parents had. And so in, in our paper, which I, I co-authored with Robert Schultz, who's a graduate student at Michigan, um, we define socioeconomic background as the parents' level of education. And that was not because we thought that was a better definition, but because it's the only one we can get data on. So ideally, we would be able to supplement it with the others. We can't. So we're just saying, let's look at the population of economists who get PhDs and see whether they came from households where they had no parent with a college degree, at least one parent with a college degree, a parent with a graduate degree, a parent with a PhD. And that's what we're using as our sort of socioeconomic background definition. It's not necessarily race or gender, but it is correlated. No, exactly. It's it's a different axis of um, privilege, I guess, or disprivilege than race or gender. And it's correlated with race in the sense that in the US and many countries, um, if you're non-white, you're more likely to be from a less advantaged socioeconomic background as well, um, for all the many sort of systemic inequality reasons we could go off and talk about in a separate conversation, but it's not the same thing. You know, there's plenty of white men who come from low socioeconomic resources backgrounds as well. Got it. Okay. And genders that isn't necessarily correlate, although the, I guess there's a gender issue in the economics profession as well. Would you say? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, gender in the population at large obviously isn't correlated, but in economic, in academia, yeah. it is going to end up being correlated. We're going to see that the kinds of fields that have a gender problem and have a race problem are also the kinds of fields that have a socioeconomic background problem and that they are really underrepresenting people from these less advantaged groups. Overall. Right. Right. And socioeconomic, it's not nationality because the economics profession is quite diverse when you look across, at least the, the folks that 
get PhDs from American universities are quite diverse. Uh, yeah, so that's that's another tricky one because exactly economics. One of the one of the great things about um, I think economics academia in the U.S. is it's very international. So seventy percent of PhDs in economics in the last decade were to non-Americans. Um, only thirty percent to people born in the U.S. And so, you know, when you're looking at what does socioeconomic background mean across countries, using parental education means completely different things in different countries, because it means very different things depending on, you know, what that country's overall level of education is and how its education system works. So when, you know, when we were studying this issue, we separated US born people and foreign born people to try and proxy for where they got their education um, so that we could really get granular about what does socioeconomic background mean when you're talking about parental education. Got it, got it. And so based on your definition, the, the education of the parents of the kids that are, uh, or the, the people that are getting their PhDs in economics at American universities, looking at yeah. that, the economics profession kind of uh, the, uh, uh, stands out here, right? They're kind of an outlier, feels like an outlier. It is, it is. It's, um, it's a really quite striking outlier, actually, when you compare economics to other other PhD fields in the US. So just as the, the baseline, if you're looking across all PhD recipients in the last decade in the US, and this is, by the way, you know, always get excited about data, but this is amazing data. This is data that See is- See how excited she is, Chris? She's almost excited <laughs> as Ryan is, you know, Ryan- get, and She's I say, one of us. She's, she's one, one of us. us. And, I, yes. and I noticed, Ryan, Ryan, have you joined? Or are you still- He's not joined. His picture is on the Zoom, but he's not his joined. Jo his okay. picture has joined. But no. His picture has joined. Picture has joined. Okay. Okay. Well, would Ryan also be excited about the data? Oh, my absolutely. gosh. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. We're all data geeks uh, here. We're all data geeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's such a nice world, isn't it, when you're all data geeks suddenly? <laughs> yeah. um, well, we're so easily pleased. I mean, you know, just you know, give, a, give us a computer screen. We're good. And in, exactly. in the internet, of course. Yeah, yeah good. So. Maybe Stata. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. No, so this Maybe data, data. Is, it's, it's all PhD recipients in the US. Everyone, the National Science Foundation makes everyone who gets a PhD fill out this survey. So the response rate is in the high 90%. So we really do know with a great mm. degree of certainty that everything I'm going to tell you is representative because it is basically everyone who's filling it out. So, um, so of, of all the people that got their PhDs in the US in the last decade, um, if you split the PhDs into 15 big fields, so you've got humanities, social sciences, and pull out economics from the other ones. Uh, so the rest of the social sciences, you've got physical sciences, biological sciences, math, computer science, and so on. Um, economics has the lowest share of PhDs with no parent with a college degree. So that's sort of first generation college graduates. And it has the highest share um, with uh, along with the humanities with at least one parent with a graduate degree. So a graduate degree would be a PhD, an MD, a JD, an MBA, all those kinds of degrees. So it's, it's an outlier just at the first pass. And then the even more striking thing is, you know, I mentioned we were splitting it into US born and foreign born PhDs because parental education means different things in different countries and contexts. If you just look at US born PhDs, um, economics has an even, is an even more striking outlier. So even if you compare it to other narrow fields, it's the least socioeconomically diverse field. Only about one in six economics PhD recipients are first-generation college grads. And that's lower than uh, to take just a couple of fields that people typically think of as very elite, art history or classics, for example. Hey, before we move on, Chris, I just want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything on that you wanted to 
ask Anna about in terms of the uh, uh, what what we mean by socioeconomic? I, I was just uh, struck by the uh, the choice of definition, right? So there's been certainly a lot of talk about gender and race within economics, but even more broadly. So. Um, I was wondering if you, well, it sounds like you selected this data because it was available, right? This great uh, data set, but even more than that, I, I do, I am concerned about uh, the studies around gender and, and race just uh, for two reasons. One is the, the definitions themselves are evolving. So if you look at uh, uh, racial identification in the census, right? Uh, more and more people are choosing multiple, uh, multiple races are identifying with multiple races. So it makes it more and more difficult for empirical research to really understand who is in which category. And then there's more, uh, there is a greater non-response rate we see as well with people choosing not to answer certain questions about gender or race or other personal questions. So I, I, what I liked about your studies, it's, it seems very concrete, right? Parents' education, yes, there may be differences across countries, but still it's something that we can observe and measure. I was wondering if that was part of the motivation here or are you interested in all the different uh, dimensions uh, oh, yeah, there's, of there's diversity that we can consider? Yeah, I know there's a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, the reason we chose socioeconomic diversity is because actually we were both really interested in gender and race, think that it matters a lot. And I met my co-author at a summit on diversity and economics uh, in 2018, I think. And all the conversation was about gender and race, which is great and really important. And I've done a lot mm -hmm. of, of work on those topics in terms of not academic work, but sort of advocacy type work. Um, but both of us were thinking that this socioeconomic background, family, financial resources, social class dimension of things was missing. And that's why we ended up writing this. So writing this to sort of plug a gap that we thought people weren't talking about enough in conjunction with gender and race, which people are talking about more. I mean, it has the advantage that um, parental education can be easily measured, but I do think what we can't do is we can't get more granular uh, because, for example, it's very different in terms of your financial resources. If you came from a pretty financially well-off middle-class household where maybe neither of your parents went to college, but they were earning a good living in the building trades, for example, versus you came from a family that was in poverty. And we can't distinguish between those two things. Everyone mm. who's got no parent with a college degree is going to be lumped into those groups. And so that's that's one of the shortcomings of our very clean um, clean categories. So, so uh, now that we've established that, uh, I, I guess the next question that comes to mind is why? Uh, you know, why do we see such a disparity here? I, I, I'm, I'm sure that's pretty tough to nail down, but I'm sure you have some thoughts about that. Can you give us a sense of that? Yeah, so I think um, we can broadly separate into three buckets where it's coming from. And we can't in our study identify everything but hopefully we can start this conversation at least with some ideas and directions. So one bucket is obviously PhD academia is much less socioeconomically diverse than the general population. And I know you both know that, but it's just important to emphasize that a big part of the difference when we say only one in six economics PhDs in the US from a US born family has got no parent with a college degree, that's five times lower than the rate in the general population of similar age people. But most of that gap is coming from academia rather than economics. But within academia, obviously, we've just established that economics is even more of an outlier. So why is that? Part of it seems to be coming from something to do with the quantitative disciplines. 
So economics, math, and computer science, very specifically, diverged from the rest of the PhD fields, um, starting in about the 80s, in their share that was coming from, you know, first-generation college student background, and their share that had at least one parent with a graduate degree. They were becoming much less socioeconomically diverse relative to the other academic disciplines. So there's something about the quantitative disciplines, their pipelines, maybe the preparation people are getting in college. But then economics diverged even from math and computer science starting in about 2000. And so then we have to think about the economic specific factors, what's happening with economics at the undergrad level and what's happening with economics at the kind of pipeline from undergrad to PhD, are people falling off there? So I have, I have thoughts on all of those three buckets, but those are really the kind of big picture how we think about the problem. When you peel that onion back a little bit more for us, which I'm gonna ask you to do, whether my yeah. one explanation might not be like education in high school, you know, pre-college. Mm. Like when I went to school, I don't know if it's still the same case, the same same way. Obviously, I've been out of high school for a long time, but I, you know, I got home. I had home economics. Home economics meant, meant how do you make an omelet? You know, right. which, by the way, I can make a pretty good omelet. I can't make much <laughs> of anything, you know, but I can make. I can wash berries. I can get my coffee <laughs> from Wawa, and I can make an omelet, but Economics. Can you sew a button? Pardon me. So a button. Sew a button. Yeah. Not Home economics. I can do it. Not well. Yeah. Let me put it that way. Not well. Uh, Not well. Can you right. sew a button? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's about it. But yeah. Uh, well, I can but, but, but you know, there was no such thing as even like basic household finance, right? Like, right. what is a mortgage? When I got out of high school, I didn't know what a mortgage. I had no idea what a mortgage was. Uh, yeah. So. I, I would think economics coming out of high school for many is just very daunting, right? Because they have very little to no experience with it. Is that, did you find that, is, am I going down the wrong path here or is that on a partial explanation of what's going yeah, on? Yeah, no, I think, I think that must be a factor. When I was saying undergrad, I was sort of bucketing in everything that happens mm -hmm. up until you choose your major basically. And so I'm sure that's a factor in that people don't know what economics involves. And so you, we haven't, um, I haven't seen any studies specifically on this as it relates to socioeconomic background, but there've been some of the investigations into why undergrad economics is not very diverse in the US, the undergrad major. Um, uh, researchers have surveyed incoming freshmen and asked them what they think about economics. And the perception is to the extent they know anything that economics is finance and economics is people right. that want to go work in banks. And obviously a lot of economics is finance, but a lot of it isn't. And I think the lack of understanding of what economics is, is probably meaning that a lot of people who might be interested don't even think about it. So we're losing people even before, um, even before we get in the first hurdle. And there's, there's other studies in the UK um, which have asked high school students to draw, I don't know if high school or what level of school, but school students to draw pictures of what they think an economist looks like. And it's sort of a, a person in a suit with a top hat and lots of money. So you know, there's definitely perceptions <laughs> of economics that are not, um, not helping in terms of getting a diverse group of people into the discipline. So that's, I'm sure that's a part of the problem. Just the, just the image, the perception. Okay. So yeah. as you peel that onion back a little further, uh, Okay, so quanti it's quanti highly quantitative and, and all disciplines that are highly quantitative, math, obviously, computer science, are suffering to some degree this issue, yeah. but economics even stands out from those. So, so what other factors could be explaining that? Uh, we, uh, uh, what could, what yeah. could be driving that? 
So what we, one of the things we try and look at to see what might be driving it is we can we can try and break down mechanically where this difference is coming from relative mm. to other PhDs. And one of the things we can do to break that down is to look at what undergrad schools people came from. So this is saying, take economics PhDs, and we can see in the data every, you know, every person who got them, what undergrad they went to, if they did undergrad in the US. And then we can do that for the other PhD subjects. And one of the things we find is that economics PhDs are coming from a disproportionately socioeconomically advantaged pool of undergrad schools. So it's we don't know, obviously, whether that's happening because of application decisions or because of selection on application, right? We don't know where that is coming from, but that's a really important piece of the puzzle. And when we break it down further, we actually see that economics, again, comparing it to these other big categories of subject, math, computer science, humanities, economics is... Um, pulling the, the largest share of its US educated PhDs um, from private universities and not public. And it's also pulling the largest share from Ivy plus universities. So we define that as, you know, following other researchers as um, the eight Ivy League plus uh, four more, who's um, is escaping me right now, but 12, 12 elite undergrad schools, the sort of Ivy plus category. Um, so economics is really, pulling people from the kinds of schools where such a large share of the population is so socioeconomically advantaged that it would almost be, you know, very, very fluky to actually get a very diverse population of students if you're just drawing from those schools. So that's, like, that's one of the factors. Sorry, carry on. No, I was just going to say, so, yeah, I have my PhD from Penn, University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. My dad yeah. was a professor, <laughs> so, you know, of engineering. Chris, yeah. you got your PhD from Hopkins, right? From Hopkins. Hopkins, yep. And... Was your what about your parents? Were they how educated? My parents can I ask? Are high, sure, they are high school. Oh, so you're socio. Um, oh, I'm so in your, you are socioeconomically diverse. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> well, good. that's what I found interesting as well from this uh, study, this perspective. Good. Right. Well, I'm, gl I'm I glad fall to in a that. category of diversity. Diversity along this uh, this, but hardly uh, would consider myself. Uh, disadvantaged well, I, uh, well now I, my whole view has changed to here uh yeah uh, uh, and anna you're obviously harvard okay so were your parents highly educated as well yeah my parents both lawyers by training both, so both lawyers yeah definitely you know they both in the uk in the u.s data that would count as a graduate degree in the uk it's not a graduate subject so oh. it would count as an undergraduate degree but like in practice they're lawyers so yeah um, definitely came from a background where i was advantaged i mean i think it manifest not it manifests partly financially but also just manifests in like parents being able to help you navigate university and graduate school and that kind of thing well it feels like you had to keep pulling this onion back because that doesn't yeah. feel quite satisfying to say that, no right so can can you pull it back another layer yes. okay so oh good could, i knew you could okay great yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we've got so many layers <laughs> in this <laughs> it's it's a it's a big onion so um Part of it is coming from the pool of schools. And as I said, we don't know why this is drawing from this advantage pool of schools. Part of it is coming from the pool of undergrad majors. And so this is just kicking the onion down the road for one of a mixed metaphor, um, which is econ undergrad also seems to be pretty non-socioeconomically diverse. That's not explaining everything. Part of it is an, an undergrad to PhD problem, but the econ undergrad major is already less socioeconomically diverse than math or than the other social sciences, which is sort of the most direct comparators, if you think about econ being a mathematical social science in some sense. So 
something's going on at the undergrad major level. Part of this seems to be that, um, you know, it intersects with the school in that at private um, at private schools, econ is a bigger and more popular major than at public schools. So you've already got some kind of selection there. And then part of it is um, at a lot of big public schools, there's, and so uh, there's a GPA cutoff so that if you are below a certain GPA when you're choosing your majors, you actually can't get into a major like economics. It's very competitive, it's very popular. And there's been research by um, Zach Bleemer, who's an economist at Yale, uh, showing that this GPA cutoff is disproportionately keeping lower income students out of economics because when they come into undergrad, they're probably less prepared. They've come from maybe less good high schools. And so that's also a, a, a source of the problem. That's interesting. Hey, uh, does, uh, before I let you pull the onion back even further, if you want to do that, Chris, do you have a, a theory as to what's going on? I mean, when you were reading in his work, uh, you know, I'm sitting there yeah. thinking, you know, what could be explaining this? Uh, did you have any, come up with any theories as to what was going on? Do you want to test out on yeah. Anna? Sure. Sure. I, and certainly the, I, the, uh, the paper resonates with me certainly in terms of the parents education. I think the profession itself, economics does a disservice in terms of present as not a particularly practical uh, major, mm -hmm. if you will. So some, if I reflect on my own background, right, my parents didn't go to college, but they, uh, certainly, we're encouraging practical uh, majors, mathematics. Mm -hmm. If it was business, it's accounting, uh, finance, mm -hmm. so something very practical. Economics was not really on that list in terms of uh, practical, um, a practical major, something that could lead to uh, employability or a high propensity to get employed. Also, I, I feel as though the profession also shies away from some of the key uh, questions that people, personal finance, right? Typically, we as um, if you ask an economist for any uh, personal finance advice or stock market investment advice, suddenly the arms go up, right? Oh, no, 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 I, I don't do that. I'm, I, I don't study finance. You really want to talk to a stockbroker or someone. I, and I, I think economists have a lot to say, actually, on those fronts. But we kind of mm. take this uh, hands-off approach that, uh, oh, no, no, we study models. We, we uh, are looking for uh, behavioral changes, incentives. So my sense is that that might actually be dissuading uh, quite a few potential uh, prospects from even considering this as a, a field uh, to go into, and I, I think you touched on that in your uh, in your mm -hmm. research. So that would be my leading leading uh, uh, theory for the case. But uh, I wonder what do you think about that? Is there? Yeah, is that... yeah, I think that sounds very plausible, and that's something that we can't speak to directly with our data. But I certainly think seems very likely to be the case, and it's something I hear a lot in these kinds of conversations, which is. Um, yeah, majors that seem like they are practical and that they are going to lead to a good career that will provide a return on this big investment in college that a lot of people are making um, are often going to be encouraged, particularly by families, um, first generation college families. And that's economics doesn't necessarily sound like that, even though it is in practice, sure. you know, one of the highest paying majors, but it's not necessarily and it's to this awareness point. It's not necessarily one uh, clear that it is going to be. And I do think I do think that's compounded by. Um, the way often intro economics is taught or economics as a whole, but particularly the introductory right. courses. And I think part of it is this, um, this feeling of it being very divorced from the, the kinds of really very central real world questions that we're studying as economists. And, you know, if you're, um, if you're studying indifference curves and thinking about Robinson Crusoe sitting on an island trading off leisure and labor, or, 
you're thinking about guns and butter in a production function, which is both, you know, both of the ways I, uh, right. you know, my <laughs> it just feels so far away from the questions that we are caring about right now, you know, what's going on outside with the financial crisis or inflation or unemployment, and we'll get there, but it takes so long that I think you lose a lot of people on the way. I also worry, and I'd be interested in both of your thoughts, um, that the way we teach intro econ and the way we kind of, the way that some econ uses language can be quite exclusionary yeah. in a way that I think might might well put a lot of people off in general, but might disproportionately put people off um, for whom this language is speaking about them and people they love, which is, you know, we use this, this language, low ability, low type, unskilled is often used to describe right. people without a college degree, which is not only offensive, but just very clearly inaccurate. Um, and I think that could, must play a role as well. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Right? It certainly does. Yeah, it is, yeah. It is kind of offensive to say unskilled. Uh, or low skilled, yeah. Yeah, that's just, yeah, that's just not right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, right. any, any, oh, sorry, go ahead, Anna. No, I was just going to say, I think it's not right. And I also think it's just not precise or correct. Not so precise, it's better not if correct. we just said what we meant. You know, yeah. Yeah. college, no yeah. college, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Any other layers to the onion that you'd want to peel back? There's a couple, a couple others um, that relate to, because a lot of what we've been talking about is kind of when you're at high school, when you're in undergrad, what are people choosing? Where are they, where are they going? A couple of layers that I think are relevant in the um, undergrad to grad school bit of the equation is that economics, I think, is relatively unusual in having um having a path to grad school where it's probably not best if you just do well in the econ major. You act because it's such a mathematical subject and because the undergrad major is usually not taught very heavy on math or doesn't have to be. Um, you're advised if you want to go to grad school uh, that you need to have a lot of good grades and a lot of very advanced math courses, or ideally you want to have a minor in math or maybe even a major or maybe even a math um, you know, only undergrad degree with a little bit of economics. And if you're, if you're not, very aware in your second year of a four-year college degree that that's what you want to do is go on and get a PhD. If you realize in your fourth year or even your third year that you're really enjoying this and you want to take it further, you might not be prepared. You might not have the courses ready under your belt. And so I think there's just such a, there's such a winding path to the PhD in economics that is not very obvious or transparent. I think that's got to play a role. And that seems like something that would be much easier to fix with more direct and conscious outreach, I think. Yeah, good point. Uh, well, I, I guess the next question uh, is, okay, the profession is not socioeconomically diverse. So what? You know, big deal. Yeah. You know, why yeah. should we be concerned about this? Right. Why have we been talking about it this yeah. whole time? Yeah. Um, okay. You know, yeah. what's the deal? I mean, what, why should we, why should we? Could, that should have been the first question. I, I guess that should have been the first question. <laughs> well, that, that, that would have felt a little rude, I think. Why are you, why are you on this podcast again? <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, so I think there are three reasons you should care about this. Um, the first reason is as good economists, um, we should think there's an efficiency case for caring about this. And I think this is the, this is the case with any kind of, um, almost any kind of diversity argument, which is if you believe that underlying talent across different fields is equally distributed across the population, which I do, then um, if, if it's disproportionately difficult for people from some groups to get into that profession, you're excluding talent that would actually be really good 
at doing economics. And so we're just losing a whole bunch of people that would be very good economists, and therefore we are missing out on good research. So there's an efficiency case that on the face of it, I think is actually compelling enough. But there's also two other cases that I think are important. One is obviously the equity case. I think we should care that if, if this situation is arising from a lack of information or from barriers to access or from exclusionary behavior, if it's arising not as a result of perfectly informed, um, free and optimized choice, uh, then that's an equity issue. We should want there not to be barriers to access to our profession and we should want everyone to have the ability to get in. But I think the one that's very specific to economics, because those two can apply to any discipline, right? They can apply to any profession. The one that's specific to economics is we're a social science and we are studying the way humans act basically in different situations. And the way humans act is crucial to understanding basically everything that we care about. You know, thinking about inflation, like how are people choosing to set prices? How are workers responding to wages? Are people perceiving nominal or real wage increases? What are they expect is gonna happen with inflation? If we're thinking about unemployment, if we're thinking about how people make decisions about access to education or how people decide when and whether to move for jobs. Um, almost all economic questions, well, I think all, not even almost all, all economics questions require this. And I think it's pretty clear that to understand these kinds of questions well and fully, you want to have the full context of how people are making those decisions. And it's very hard to get the full context of how people are making decisions if you're parachuted in with no awareness of how that context operates. It's doable. I think people can research contexts that they're not from, but I think as a profession, the more people we have that are used to and know very intimately all these different contexts, the more we'll be able to gather all that information and do better research about inflation and unemployment and access to education and healthcare and welfare and poverty and all of these topics. Yeah. I mean, so I, I also, I think it affects the things that we think about, right? I mean, income mm -hmm. and wealth inequality, it's, it's yeah. come onto the radar screen in recent years just because it's been so long in the making and such a problem, but it, yeah. it took us a long time to really start thinking about it as, a, as an economics profession. And maybe that's in part because well, it wasn't affecting us, you know, we didn't see it in our everyday lives um, because we weren't socioeconomically diverse. Absolutely. I think that must be a factor. And you see that with the history of um, gender in economics, for example, that some of the pioneering women economists at the time when there were very, very few women economists were studying topics that were just not thought about before um, very much to do with how women, um, you know, participate in the workforce and combinations of work and family. And so I'm sure you'd, you see that again, as you get more socioeconomic diversity. I think it also affects just how, you know, what we think about as the most salient issues when we, when we exactly. research specific topics. So I have a, an example that, that has been relevant in my research is I've done some work on the minimum wage and non-compliance with the minimum wage in the US and the UK. And it's my sense that often when we're talking about the minimum wage, whether it's in econ research or in policy in the media, non-compliance is not really thought of as a big issue. But when you dig in. Um, I didn't know that. Big... It's a problem? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, it's I no a idea. huge issue. I huh. know. And when you look at the estimates that other researchers have made, actually, there's very, very large shares of people that should be being paid the minimum wage that aren't. Um, and it's because minimum wage non-compliance is actually really hard. It's very easy to detect if. Literally, it says on your pay slip that the pay is below the minimum wage, but a lot of minimum wage violations are hard to detect for workers and for, you know, society at large. And so um, can be very big. It's things like you're paid a piece rate, for example, to clean a hotel room and the piece rate is supposed to make up on average the minimum wage, but it doesn't. Mm. Or 
you're um, required to clean up after you've clocked out. And that is adding time every day that is not being paid. All these different kinds of things that add up. Um, and I think we'd be much more aware of these things as a profession if there were more people who had worked minimum wage jobs or had family that had worked minimum wage jobs who could say, this is how it works in practice. This is what we're not seeing when we're gathering the aggregate data. Yeah, great point. Great point. Uh, I, I do want to move on to your other research, but before I do that, to kind of uh, close the conversation around this, it doesn't feel like, given the discussion, that there's a slam dunk solution here, right? It doesn't there's like no smoke and gun. If I do this, I'm going to solve this problem. Is that is that your sense of it? Yeah, I don't think there's a smoking gun, um, but I do think that there are some obvious paths that will make things better, even if it won't solve it. So I think if part of the, so one of the, one of the questions we didn't talk about is whether this is a, just a, a good choice people are making that if they, if they've um, taken an undergrad degree that they're maybe better served by going and getting a good well-paid private sector that's job a and point. PhD, yeah. right? So yeah. if that's, if that's what's going on uh, and econ undergrads are just actually, you know, optimizing for income, that then there may not be a problem to solve from the perspective of the individual. It may still be a problem from the perspective of the profession. But if there really are barriers, we can do a lot more to, to, to bring them down, right? So we can, as a profession, do a lot more to mentor more proactively. And that's happening a lot more with race and gender now. And I think incorporating socioeconomic background into mentorship schemes and expanding them would make a huge difference. Seeking people out for those mentorship schemes early in undergrad increasing awareness of what econ is in undergrad and in high school. There's, a, there's some interesting studies, I think a study by economists at Swarthmore and some other schools as well, where they've looked at just really expanding information, sending undergrads uh, when they enter the school, information about what econ is and the diversity of topics. By the way, Swarthmore is a Philly suburb we we live we we, oh, very, we, live, we all both of us live very close to swap there's a lot great, of great university pride on this yeah. on this <laughs> yeah. apparently apparently a lot of well, pride a lot of philly pride yeah yeah they did this great intervention um where you inform people about econ and the diversity of, of of topics and the diversity of people studying it and you know a lot of these kinds of really easy information interventions already see big increases in the number of women racial ethnic minorities and first generation college students choosing econ subjects or even econ majors. And so there's a lot of very kind of low lift, obvious, easy things I think we can do as a profession. And once we've done all those and we still have a problem, um, then we can start thinking about whether there's something more complicated. So I think expanding access, expanding information and doing something about those issues we talked about regarding how econ is taught. Right. There's a lot of movements like with the core econ movement as one example to really reshape how intro econ is taught to be more focus directly on the real world problems and then bringing in the theory. So it's very clear how the theory tackles those problems. I think those three things could do a lot. Right. On, on that question of uh, optimal choice of the undergraduate major, do you see a larger share of uh, econ PhDs going on to academia than other subjects? Is this just a, is that just the path to, to academia? You will have to um, you will have to ask this again after I've finished the next paper in oh. the series, which we're working on <laughs> okay. right now, which is looking at we've just matched. I'm working with two others, um, Anna Giftia Pokoajaman and Kira Rodriguez, and we are matching the census of PhDs to their career paths. So we will be able to know soon, but don't know yet. Fantastic, right. uh, Chris. Any other? Uh, I, I do want to respect Anna's time, but I, and I do want to talk about her work on worker power. But uh, any other? Did we miss anything here that you wanted to uh, highlight or bring up? 
Uh, no, I think okay. You, I think we hit it. It's a complex problem. Yeah, it's, it's not uh, going to be solved easily. But uh, well, and, and I have to say, you know, we're we're a large employer, right? We have I have a, we have a hundred economists or so across the globe. So uh, we're hiring uh, lots of folks, and this isn't something on our radar screen. You know, it's not like we look to see what your socioeconomic background is, right? That's not a question we ask or even would think about at. You know, there's no way to get that information. I mean, we see what your gender is. We see what, you know, obviously your ethnicity is, your race, but socioeconomics is not, you know, on the radar screen. So I, yeah, I'm not sure so, what we, you know, if that matters or should matter. I would encourage, I think, I think I would encourage employers to think of this as part of their diversity and inclusion. Is that right? Okay. And monitoring. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so there's, there's a number of employers, um, I'm not following these efforts closely, so I don't have a huge amount of details, but there's a number of employers in the UK that are actually making a move to include this as one of the kind of, you know, how you ask in your intake, often you'll ask in an intake screen, you know, race and gender for diversity monitoring. And that right. you can ask a question that is, it, you know, the, the exact question depends on the context. In the UK, one of the questions that often asked is, um, did you come from a family that was eligible for free school meals? Because free school meals is a kind of government defined income cutoff that everyone knows and everyone knows whether they were or weren't um, eligible for it. And I, I do think that gathering the data is the first step to knowing if and where a problem exists. So I, I think it could be a good thing to do. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, although, although one interesting thing about our hiring, and we do hire a lot of folks from very elite schools, but we also hire a lot of folks from public schools because I find mm, public great. universities, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a like we hire from Penn, but we also hire from Penn State, you know, yeah. because in a private public, because I I I find the the kids that come from the public schools to be much more practical, you know, much more thinking about real world problems as opposed to, you know, thinking about game theory or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but uh, in, in for the work that we do at Moody's Analytics, because it's very empirically based, data driven, you know, yeah. model based, that's really important. Uh, and of course, we're very focused on the what's going on in the world right now, you know, because that's what our clients are most focused on. So, yeah. Uh, well, that's good I got some hear. of our that's best good. programmers are. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, but while we have you, though, uh, yeah. you, wrote, you wrote this great paper with Larry Summers uh, back uh, prior to the pandemic on worker power. Could you it's a very interesting paper with an interesting result. Maybe can we can you start by just summarizing that work? And then we, I would yeah. like to talk about, well, what do you think about what you wrote, you know, a little over two years ago now in the context of the post pandemic? Or I should say, we're in the middle of pandemic still during the pandemic right. labor market. <laughs> during the pandemic, during the pandemic, -pandemic yeah. world, will there ever be? Yeah. Um, so that paper was basically looking at big macro trends in the U.S. over the last forty years, and those big trends are the decline in the labor share of income, um, the rise in corporate profitability and equity valuations, measures like Tobin's Q, and the decline in before the pandemic, this is of course the decline in average unemployment without generating an increase in inflation. So these are sort of the decline in the narrow, if you want to call it that, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Full employment unemployment rate, yeah. Exactly, the full employment unemployment rate. So those three big trends are arguably some of the kind of most defining macroeconomic trends of the last 40 years. And um, we argue that the decline in worker power in the US was um, one of the biggest forces explaining those trends and that it was as important, if not more important, we argue probably more important than 
a rise in monopoly power uh, than globalization or than technological change in driving particularly the decline in the labor share of income. Yeah, and, and I think at the you had a list of measures of worker power. Unionization was like first on the list, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In fact, it's interesting you say that because all the modeling we've done of the income and wealth, the skewing of the income and wealth distribution over the last 33, five years, the, the one variable that always works in every single model very strongly is, is unionization. That is like really important uh, in explaining what's going on. That's really interesting to hear. Yeah, we found that it had a big effect and we were thinking of it in two ways. One is the the kind of direct way that you think about it, which is the unionization rate uh, in the private sector in the US is now 6%. And at its peak, one in three in the 50s, one in three private sector workers were union members. So that's just been this you know, massive, massive decline in the share of people that are covered by a union agreement in the private sector. But the other is, so that's a direct effect, but there's also this indirect effect which is that if you are in a plant and the plant down the road is unionized, um, your employers are going to have an incentive to pay you better or give you better benefits or give you better work conditions in order to avoid your plant from unionizing too, which is often called the union threat effect. So we think that the combination of that direct effect plus this indirect union threat effect you know, were, were very, very big factors in explaining this decline in worker power. Not, not necessarily the whole thing, but a very, very big component. Yeah, and let's uh, now fast forward to the current point in time. My uh, read of the data, if I look at things like uh, labor share of national income or other measures of the the share of the economic pie going to labor versus versus uh, businesses, that has it feels like it's stabilized over the last decade or so. You know, it had this the labor share declined very dramatically. It felt like in beginning in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, but you know, since the financial crisis, I mean, really before the financial crisis, it feels like it it has leveled off. And then more recently, and now because of the pandemic, it feels like things are shifting here. That you know, it, it used to be workers were on their back feet vis-a-vis their employers, but that doesn't feel like that's the case now, and may not be the case going forward, given demographic trends and, you know, what that means for labor supply, that kind of thing. But what's your view of all that? Did I characterize the data correctly in, in what is your view of all that? Yeah, no, I think you did. I think identifying trends in the labor share is a, is a fraught topic and yeah. very, very debated because it depends exactly what measure you want to use and as to what you capture, you know, <laughs> should housing be included in capital income and what do you do about self-employed people and all these other questions and measurement questions. But broadly speaking, yeah, the big declines in the corporate sector labor share were at the beginning of the 80s and then the beginning of the 2000s. And it's a very cyclical measure. So it's hard to know if the what we saw in the last 10 years was to what extent that was a result of cyclical patterns, because, you know, we had the Great Recession and then we had this incredibly tight labor market before the pandemic, and to what extent it's a secular flattening. Um, but, but now it, it's an interesting time. I think we are seeing we're seeing two sets of trends that are related in terms of worker power or power shifting in labor markets. And one is that there does seem to be a big uptick in union organizing effort and success. Uh, If you see the Staten Island um, Amazon warehouse that successfully unionized earlier this year, which was the first, um, first ever Amazon union to form. If you see the Starbucks unionizing effort, which really took off from you know, nothing to many, many stores now uh, having unionized or about to vote for unions. So there's this big upsurge in union organizing. And there's also, of course, this very um, tight labor market in terms of low unemployment and wage growth and 
um, hires and all these other things that I know you've talked about a lot on, on this podcast. And that, even if there's no um, formal bargaining power in the form of a union, gives workers bargaining power. Because if, if there are lots of employers competing for an individual worker, that worker has more power to get better pay, get better benefits, say no to, to bad working conditions. So in that sense, yeah, I think we're seeing a shift. The big question for me is to what extent this shift is going to be long lasting, because this um, this tight labor market, um, depending on how uh, monetary policy responds and how it can respond, seems unlikely to last forever. Um, it may last a while longer. It's hard to know how uh, what the response is going to be to, to interest rate hikes and how that's going to pan out over the next couple of years. But almost certainly, you're not going to have a tight labor market forever. And then in terms of the um, the, the union side of things, I think we have to remember that we're at a union organizing a unionization rate of 6% in the private sector. Right. So you have to do a lot of <laughs> a lot of unionization to get up to where we were in the early 80s, which was 20, 25%. Um, the, the new union organizing activity that would have to happen to get there is so vast. And in a context where unionization has declined consistently every single year, um, you know, over the last decades, it just seems, it seems, I think, a little premature to, to know whether we're at a really true inflection point or whether all of the structural forces that have been combining to, to cause the decline of unionization, which are big there you know policy hostility in a very very difficult organizing environment where um, violations by firms are not penalized legally they they can't be there's no the NLRA doesn't provide for penalties to firms for violating the law um, and you've also got difficulties organizing in service sector where um, you know organizing a big hundred several hundred person plant is very different than organizing several small 15 person establishments so all of these big structural factors are still there and I think the question of how much union organizing effort can um, the kind of the upswell of organizing can outweigh those big structural factors and move us from a place which is already so low in terms of unionizing that's one thing where I think I'm not sure how much change we're going to see in a, in a big, meaningful sense. Yeah, it's it's a key question, you know, whether what we're observing is cyclical. I mean, there's definitely a cyclical component to it, obviously, because mm-hmm. the pandemic is still disrupting labor supply. And, you know, that's going to take a while to iron out. Uh, but how yeah. much of it is there's a kind of an underlying trend here? I was actually at a function uh, or in a uh, function might be too strong a word, a kind of a, a an event where, um, that may be a strong word too. I don't know what the word is, but you know, you're convening. Convening is the right word. David Otter was there. Uh, David David is at MIT, isn't he? Is he, he is, yeah. Yeah. He's in the yeah, yeah, so he's a colleague of yours. And he presented some really cool research on uh, wage growth by different parts of the income distribution and uh, mm-hmm. nicely showed that even pre-pandemic, wage growth for low-wage workers had caught up to wage growth for high-wage workers. Now, obviously, during the pandemic, low-wage workers have done well, because that's where the labor shortages have been most severe, because that's where the pandemic has been most of a problem, labor, leisure, hospitality, retail, that kind of thing. But he was making the point that, in in fact, it looks like there was something going on even before, you know, the pandemic hit. And that uh, would uh, suggest that this is not just cyclical, there's some secular, you know, developments here that might be uh, helpful. And that wasn't explained fully by the tight labor market pre-pandemic, you know, because we were at very low unemployment rates in 
like late yeah it started yeah it started even well you know it was uh 2015 16 oh, okay. 17 you know before before 18 and 19 so we're definitely you, you wouldn't say we're at full employment it was like no, you wouldn't have yeah in the week you know expansion period after the financial crisis you know you know if you go back yeah. prior to that you know the low wage workers were getting you could see it the wage growth was well below you know middle tier or high wage workers but it had converged by the 15, I'm making this up, so I don't have it quite right, but 15, 16, 17. But that was a point he was making. Uh, yeah, and, very interesting. Yeah. Was, and then, of course, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, immigration policy, how that's changed, mm -hmm. the, the trade wars, and, you know, what implications that has for low-wage workers, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought it was very interesting. But that's a, it's going to be a very key question. And I'm sure the fodder for many papers for years to come for you, Anna. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. That's that's going to be a fountain for uh, for your intellect uh, for uh, uh, all the work that you do going forward. Well, it was really <clears throat> really a pleasure and honor to have you on, and uh, learned a lot, and hope to have you on in the future. So, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a really great conversation. Really enjoyed it.